0: The Damned Thing, by Ambrose Bierce. By the light of a tallow candle, which had been placed on the end of a rough table, a man was reading something written in a book. It was an old account book, greatly worn, and the writing was not apparently very legible, for the man sometimes held the page close to the flame of the candle to get a stronger light upon it. The shadow of the book would then throw into obscurity a half of the room, darkening a number of faces and figures, beside the reader, eight other men were present. Seven of them sat against the rough log walls, silent and motionless, and the room being small, not very far from the table. By extending an arm, any one of them could have touched the eighth man, who lay on the table, face upward, partly covered by a sheet, his arms at his side. He was dead. The man with the book was not reading aloud, and no one spoke. All seemed to be waiting for something to occur, The dead man only was without exception. From the blank darkness outside came in, through the aperture that served for a window, all the ever-unfamiliar noises of night in the wilderness. The long, nameless note of a distant coyote. The stilly, pulsing thrill of tireless insects and trees. Strange cries of night birds, so different from those of the birds of the day. The drone of great blundering beetles and All that mysterious chorus of small sounds that seem always to have been but half heard when they have suddenly ceased, as if conscious of an indiscretion. But nothing of all this was noted in that company. Its members were not overmuch addicted to idle interest in matters of no particular importance. That was obvious in every line of their rugged faces, obvious even in the dim light of the single candle. They were evidently men of the vicinity farmers and woodmen. The person reading was a trifle different, one who would have said of him that he was of the world, worldly, albeit there was that in his attire, which attested a certain fellowship with the organisms of his environment. His coat would hardly have passed muster in San Francisco. His footgear was not of urban origin, and the hat that lay by him on the floor he was the only one uncovered, was such that if one had considered it as an article of mere personal adornment, he would have missed its meaning. In countenance, the man was rather prepossessing, with just a hint of sternness, though that he may have assumed or cultivated as appropriate to one in authority. For he was a coroner. It was by virtue of his office that he had possession of the books in which he was reading. It had been found among the dead man's effects, in his cabin, where the inquest was now taking place. When the coroner had finished reading, he put the book into his breast pocket. At that moment, the door was pushed open and a young man entered. He was clearly not of mountain birth and breeding. He was clad as those who dwell in the cities. His clothing was dusty, however, as from travel. He had, in fact, been writing hard to attend the inquest. The coroner nodded, but no one else greeted him. "'We've waited for you,' said the coroner. "'It is necessary to have done with the business tonight.' The young man smiled. "'I'm sorry to have kept you,' he said. "'I went away not to evade your summons, "'but to post to my newspaper an account "'of what I suppose I am called back to relate.' The coroner smiled. "The account that you posted to your newspaper?' he said, differs probably from that which you will give here under oath. That, replied the other, wholly with a visible flush, is as you choose. I use manifold paper and have a copy of what I sent. It was not written as news, for it is incredible, but as fiction. It may go as a part of my testimony under oath. But you say it is incredible. That is nothing to you, sir, if I also swear that it is true. The coroner was apparently not greatly affected by the young man's manifest resentment. He was silent for some moments, his eyes upon the floor. The men about the sides of the cabin talked in whispers, but seldom withdrew their gaze from the face of the corpse. Presently, the coroner lifted his eyes and said, We will resume the inquest. The men removed their hats. The witness was sworn. What is your name? The coroner asked. William Harker. Age. Twenty-seven. You knew the deceased, Hugh Morgan? Yes. You were with him when he died. Near him. How did that happen? Your presence, I mean. I was visiting him at his place to shoot and fish. A Part of my purpose, however, was to study him and his... Odd, solitary way of life. He seemed a good model for a character in fiction. I'd sometimes write stories. I sometimes read them. Thank you. (laughs) Stories in general, not yours. Some of the jurors laughed. Against a somber background, humor shows highlights. Soldiers in the intervals of battle laugh easily, and a jest in the death chamber conquers by surprise. Relate the circumstances of this man's death, said the coroner. You may use any notes or memoranda that you please. The witness understood. Pulling a manuscript from its breast pocket, he held it near the candle and turning the leaves until he found the passage that he wanted, began to read. The sun had barely risen when we left the house. We were looking for quail, each with a shotgun, but we had only one dog. Morgan said that our best ground was beyond a certain ridge that he pointed out, and we crossed it by a trail through the chaparral. On the other side was a comparatively level ground, thickly covered with wild oats. As we emerged from the chaparral, Morgan was but a few yards in advance. Suddenly we heard, at a little distance to our right and partly in front, a noise as some animal thrashing about in the bushes, which we could see were violently agitated. We startled a deer, he said, which we'd brought a rifle. Morgan, who'd stopped and was intently watching the agitated chaparral, said nothing, but had cocked both barrels of his gun and was holding it in readiness to aim. I thought him a trifle excited, which surprised me, for he had a reputation for exceptional coolness, even in moments of sudden and imminent peril. Oh, come, I said. You're going to fill a deer with a quail shot, are you? still he did not reply, but catching a side of his face as he turned it slightly toward me, I was struck by the pallor of it. Then I understood that we had serious business on hand, and my first conjecture was that we had jumped to Grizzly. I advanced to Morgan's side, cocking my piece as I moved. The bushes were now quiet, and the sounds had ceased, but Morgan was attentive to the place as before. What is it? What the devil is it? I asked damned thing, he replied without turning his head. His voice was husky and unnatural. He trembled visibly. I was about to speak further when I observed the wild oats near the place of the disturbance moving in the most inexplicable way. I can hardly describe it. It seemed as if stirred by a shriek of wind which not only bent it, but pressed it down, crushed it so that it did not rise, and this movement was slowly prolonging itself directly toward us. Nothing that i had ever seen had affected me so strangely as this unfamiliar and unaccountable phenomenon, yet I'm unable to recall any sense of fear. I remember, and tell it here because singularly enough, I recollected it then, that once, in looking carelessly out of an open window, I momentarily mistook a small tree close at hand for one of a group of larger trees at a little distance away. It looked the same size as the others, but being more distinctly and shapely defined in mass and detail, seemed out of harmony with them. It was a mere falsification of the law of aerial perspective, but it startled, almost terrified me. We so rely upon the ordinary operation of familiar natural laws that any seeming suspension of them is noted as a menace to our safety, a warning of unthinkable calamity. So now. The apparently costless movement of the herbage and the slow, undeviating approach of the line of disturbance were distinctly disquieting. My companion appeared actually frightened, and I could hardly credit my senses when I saw him suddenly throw his gun to his shoulders and fire both barrels at the agitated grass. Before the smoke of the discharge had cleared away, I heard a loud savage cry, a scream like that of a wild animal, and flinging his gun upon the ground, Morgan sprang away and ran swiftly from the spot. At the same instant, I was thrown violently to the ground by the impact of something unseen in the smoke, some soft, heavy substance that seemed thrown against me with great force. Before I could get upon my feet and recover my gun, which seemed to have been struck from my hands, I heard Morgan crying out as if in mortal agony, and mingling with his cries were such hoarse, savage sounds as one hears from fighting dogs. Inexpressibly terrified, I struggled to my feet and looked in the direction of Morgan's retreat. And may heaven in mercy spare me from another sight like that. At a distance of less than thirty yards was my friend, down upon one knee, his head thrown back at a frightful angle, hatless, his long hair in disorder, and his whole body in violent movement from side to side, backward and forward. His right arm was lifted and seemed to lack the hand. At least I could see none. The other arm was invisible. At times, as my memory now reports this extraordinary scene, I could discern but a part of his body, it was as if he'd been partly blotted out. I could not otherwise express it. Then a shifting of his position would bring it all into view again. All this must have occurred within a few seconds, yet in that time Morgan assumed all the postures of a determined wrestler vanquished by superior weight and strength. I saw nothing but him, and him not always distinctly. During the entire incident, his shouts and curses were heard as if through an enveloping uproar of such sounds of rage and fury as I'd never heard from the throat of a man or brute. For a moment only, I stood, irresolute. Then, throwing down my gun, I ran forward to my friend's assistance. I had a vague belief that he was suffering from a fit or some form of convulsion. Before I could reach his side, he was down and quiet. All sounds had ceased, but with a feeling of such terror as even these awful events had not inspired, I now saw the same mysterious movement of the wild oats prolonging itself from the trampled area about the prostrate man toward the edge of the wood. It was only when I had reached the wood that I was able to withdraw my eyes and look at my companion. He was dead. The coroner rose from his seat and stood beside the dead man. Lifting an edge of the sheet, he pulled it away, exposing the entire body, altogether naked and showing in the candlelight a clay-like yellow. It had, however, broad maculations of bluish-black, obviously caused by extravasated blood from contusions. The chest and sides looked as if they'd been beaten with a bludgeon. There were dreadful lacerations. The skin was torn in strips and shreds. The coroner moved around to the end of the table and undid a silk handkerchief, which had been pressed under the chin and knotted under the top of the head. When the handkerchief was drawn away, it exposed what had been in the throat. Some of the jurors, who had risen to get a better view, repented their curiosity and turned away their faces. Witness Harker went to the open window and leaned out across the sill, faint and sick. Dropping the handkerchief upon the dead man's neck, the coroner stepped to an angle of the room from a pile of clothing produced one garment after another each of which he held up for a moment for inspection all were torn and stiff with blood the jurors did not make a closer inspection they seemed rather uninterested they had, in truth seen all this before the only thing that was new to them being Harker's testimony gentlemen, the coroner said we have no more evidence, I think your duty has already been explained to you. If there is nothing you wish to ask, you may go outside to consider your verdict. The foreman rose, a tall, bearded man of sixty, coarsely clad. I should like to ask one question, Mr. Coroner, he said. What asylum did this year last witness escape from? Mr. Harker, said the coroner gravely and tranquilly. From what asylum did you last escape? Harker flushed crimson again but said nothing, and the seven jurors rose and solemnly filed out of the cabin. If you have done insulting me, sir, said Harker as soon as he and the officer were left alone with the dead man, I suppose I am at liberty to go. Yes. Harker started to leave but paused with his hand on the door latch. The habit of his profession was strong in him, stronger than his sense of personal dignity. He turned about and said, The book you have there, I recognize it as Morgan's diary. You seemed greatly interested in it. You read in it while I was testifying. May I see it? The public would like the book will cut no figure in this matter, replied the official, slipping into his coat pocket. All the entries in it were made before the writer's death. As Harker passed out of the house, the jury entered and stood about the table on which the now-covered corpse showed under the sheet with sharp definition. The foreman seated himself near the candle, produced from his breast pocket a pencil and scrap of paper, and wrote rather laboriously the following verdict, which with various degrees of effort all signed. We, the jury, do find that the remains come to their death at the hands of a mountain lion, but some of us thinks all the same. They had fits. In the diary of late Hugh Morgan are certain interesting entries, having possibly a scientific value as suggestions. At the inquest upon his body, the book was not put in evidence. Possibly the coroner thought it not worth while to confuse the jury. The date of the first of the entries mentioned cannot be ascertained. The upper part of the leaf is torn away, the part of the entry remaining as follows would run in a half-circle, keeping his head turned always toward the center, and again he would stand still, barking furiously. At least he ran away into the bush as fast as he could go. I thought at first that he'd gone mad, but on returning to the house found no other alteration in his manner than what was obviously due to fear of punishment. Can a dog see with his nose? Do odors impress some olfactory center with images of the thing emitting them? September 2nd. Looking at the stars last night as they rose above the crest of the ridge east of the house, I observed them successfully disappear from left to right. Each was eclipsed but in an instant, and only a few at the same time. But along the entire length of the ridge, all that were within a degree or two of the crest were blotted out. It was as if something had passed along between me and them, but I could not see it, and the stars were not thick enough to define its outline. I don't like this. Several weeks' entries are missing. Three leaves being torn from the book. September 27th. It had been about here again. I find evidences of its presence every day. I watched again, all of last night, in the same cover, gun in hand, double charged with buckshot. In the morning, the fresh footprints were there as before... I would have sworn that I did not sleep. Indeed, I hardly sleep at all. It is terrible, insupportable. If these amazing experiences are real, I shall go mad. If they're fanciful, I'm mad already. October 3rd. I shall not go. It shall not drive me away. No, this is my house, my land. God hates a coward. October 5th, I can stand it no longer. I've invited Harker to pass a few weeks with me. He has a level head. I can judge from his manner if he thinks me mad. October 7th, I have the solution of the problem. It came to me last night, suddenly as by revelation. How simple, how terribly simple. There are sounds that we cannot hear. At either end of the scale are notes that stir no chord of that imperfect instrument, the human ear. They are too high or too grave. I have observed a flock of blackbirds occupying an entire treetop, the tops of several trees, and all in full song. Suddenly, in a moment, at absolutely the same instant, all spring into air and fly away. How? They could not all see one another. Whole treetops intervened. At no point could a leader have been visible to all. There must have been a signal of warning or command, high and shrill, above the den, but by me, unheard. I have observed, too, with the same simultaneous flight when all were silent, among not only blackbirds, but other birds. Quail, for example, widely separated by bushes, even on opposite sides of a hill. It is known to seamen men that a school of whales basking or sporting on the surface of the ocean, miles apart, with the convexity of the earth between them, will sometimes dive at the same instant, all gone out of sight in a moment. The signal has been sounded, too grave for the ear of a sailor at the masthead and his comrades on the deck, who nevertheless feel its vibrations in the ship as the stones of a cathedral are stirred by the base of an organ. As with sounds, so with colors, at each end of the solar spectrum the chemists can detect the presence of what are known as actinic rays. They represent colors, integral colors in the composition of light, which we are unable to discern. The human eye is an imperfect instrument. Its range is but a few octaves of the real chromatic scale. I am not mad. There are colors we cannot see, and God help me, the damned thing is of such a color. Under the Knife by Bram Stoker What if I die under it? The thought reoccurred again and again as I walked home from Haddon's. It was a purely personal question. I was spared the deep anxieties of a married man, and I knew there were few of my intimate friends, but would find my death troublesome chiefly on account of their duty of regret. I was surprised indeed, and perhaps a little humiliated, as I turned the matter over, to think how few could possibly exceed the conventional requirement. Things came before me stripped of glamour in a clear, dry light during that walk from Haddon's house over Primrose Hill. There were the friends of my youth. I perceived now that our affection was a tradition, which we foregathered rather laboriously to maintain. They were the rivals and helpers of my later career. I suppose I'd been cold-blooded or undemonstrative, one perhaps implies the other. It may be that even the capacity for friendship is a question of psyche. There had been a time in my own life I'd grieved bitterly enough at the loss of a friend, but as I walked home that afternoon, the emotional side of my imagination was dormant. I could not pity myself, nor feel sorry for my friends, nor conceive of them as grieving for me. I was interested in this deadness of my emotional nature, no doubt a concomitant of my stagnating physiology, and my thoughts wandered off along the line it suggested. Once before my hot youth, I had suffered a sudden loss of blood and had been without an ace of death. I remembered now that my affections as well as my passions had drained out of me, leaving scarce anything but a tranquil resignation, a gerage of self-pity. It had been weeks before the old abominations and tenderness and all the complex moral interplay of a man had reasserted themselves. It occurred to me that the real meaning of this numbness might be a gradual slipping away from the pleasure-pain guidance of the animal man. It has been proven... I take it, as thoroughly as anything can be proven in this world, that the higher emotions, the moral feelings, even the subtle unselfishness of love, are evolved from the elemental desires and fears of the simple animal. They're the harness in which man's mental freedom goes. And it may be that his death overshadows us as our possibility of acting diminishes this complex growth of balance, impulse, propensity, and aversion whose interplay inspires our acts, goes with it. Leaving what? I was suddenly brought back to reality by an imminent collision with the butcher boy's tray. I found that I was crossing the bridge over the Regent's Park Canal, which runs parallel to that in the zoological gardens. The boy in blue had been looking over his shoulder at a black barge advancing slowly, towed by a gaunt white horse. In the gardens, a nurse was leading three happy little children over the bridge, trees were bright green. The spring hopefulness was still unstained by the dusts of summer. The sky and the water was bright and clear, but broken by the long waves, by quivering bands of black as the barge drove through. The breeze was stirring, but it did not stir me as the spring breeze used to. It was this dullness of feeling in itself in anticipation? I was curious that I could reason and follow out a network of suggestion as clearly as ever, so at least it seemed to me. It was calmness rather than dullness that was coming upon me. Was there any ground for the relief in the presentment of death? Did a man near to death begin instinctively to withdraw himself from the meshes of matter and sense even before the cold hand was laid upon his? I felt strangely isolated isolated without regret, from the life and existence about me. The children playing in the sun and gathering strength and experience for the business of life, the park keeper gossiping with a nursemaid, the nursing mother, the young couple intent upon each other as they passed me, the trees by the wayside spreading new pleading leaves to the sunlight The stir in their branches. I'd been part of it all, but I had nearly done with it now. Some way down the broad walk, I perceived that I was tired and that my feet were heavy. It was hot that afternoon, and I turned aside and sat down on one of the green chairs that lined the way. In a minute, I dozed off into a dream, and the tide of my thoughts washed up a vision of the resurrection. I was still sitting in the chair, but I thought myself actually dead, withered, tattered, dry. One eye, I saw, pecked out by birds. Awake! cried a voice. And incontinently, the dust of the path and the mold under the grass became insurgent. I had never before thought of Regent's Park as a cemetery, but now, through the trees, stretching as far as I could see, I beheld a flat plain of writhing graves and healing tombstones. There seemed to be some trouble. The rising dead appeared to stifle as they struggled upward. They bled in their struggles. The red flesh was torn away from the white bones. Awake! cried a voice, but I determined I would not rise to such horrors. Awake! They would not leave me alone. Wake up! said an angry voice. A cockney angel, a man who sells the tickets, was shaking me, demanding my penny. I paid my penny, pocketed my ticket, yawned, stretched my legs, and, feeling now rather less torpid, got up and walked toward Lingham Place. I speedily lost myself again in a shifting maze of thoughts about death. Going across Merrillbone Road into that crescent at the end of Lincoln Place, I had the narrowest escape from the shaft of a cab and went on my way with a palpitating heart and bruised shoulder. It struck me that it would have been curious if my meditations on my death on the morrow had led to my death that day. But I will not weary you with more experiences that day and the next I knew more and more certainly that I should die under the operation. At times, I think I was inclined opposed to, to myself. The doctors were coming at eleven, and I did not get up. It seemed scarce worthwhile to trouble about washing and dressing, and though I read my newspapers and the letters that came by the first post, I did not find them very interesting. There was a friendly note from Addison, my old school friend, calling my attention to two discrepancies and a printer's error in my new book, with one from the language venting some vexation over Minton. The rest were business communications. I breakfasted in bed. The glow of pain at my side seemed more massive. I knew it was pain, and yet, if you can understand, I did not find it very painful. I'd been awake and hot and thirsty in the night, but in the morning bed felt comfortable. In the night time, I'd lain thinking of things that were past. In the morning, I dozed over questions of immortality. Haddon came, punctual to the minute, with a neat black bag, and Mowbray soon followed. Their arrival stirred me up a little. I began to take a more personal interest in the proceedings. Hadden moved the little octagonal table close to the bedside and, with his broad back to me, began taking things out of his bag. I heard the light click of steel upon steel. My imagination, I found, was not altogether stagnant. Will you hurt me much? I said in an offhand tone. Not a bit, Hadson answered over his shoulder. We shall chloroform you. Your heart's as sound as a bell. And as he spoke, I had a whiff of the pungent sweetness of the anesthetic. They stretched me out with a convenient exposure on my side. Almost before I realized what was happening, the chloroform was being administered. It stings the nostrils, and there is a suffocating sensation at first. I knew I should die, that this was the end of consciousness for me. And suddenly I felt that I was not prepared for death. I had a vague sense of duty overlooked. I knew not what. What was it I had not yet done? I could think of nothing more to do, nothing desirable left in my life, and yet I had the strangest disinclination to death. The physical sensation was painfully oppressive. Of course, the doctors did not know that they were going to kill me. Possibly I struggled. Then I fell motionless, in a great silence, a, a monstrous silence and an impenetrable blackness came upon me. There must have been an interval of absolute unconsciousness, seconds or minutes. Then, with a chilly, unemotional clearness, I perceived that I was not yet dead. I was still in my body, but all the multitudinous sensations that come sweeping from it to make up the background of consciousness had gone leaving me free of it all. No, not free of it all, for as yet something still held me to the poor stark flesh upon the bed, held me yet not so closely that I did not feel myself external to it, independent of it, straying away from it. I do not think I saw, I do not think I heard, but I perceived all that was going on, and it was as if both heard and saw. Haddon was bending over me, Mowbray behind me. The scalpel, it was a large scalpel, was cutting my flesh at the side under the flying ribs. It was interesting to see myself cut like cheese, without a pang, without even a qualm. The interest was much of a quality that one might feel in a game of chess between strangers. Haddon's face was firm and his hands steady, but I was surprised to perceive how... I know not that the feeling of the gravest doubts as to his wisdom in the conduct of the operation. Mowbray's thoughts, too, I could see. He was thinking that Haddon's manner showed too much of the specialist. New suggestions came like bubbles through the stream of frothing meditation and burst one after another in the little bright spot of his consciousness. He could not help noticing and admiring Haddon's swift dexterity in spite of his envious quality in his disposition to detract. I saw my liver exposed. I was puzzled at my own condition. I did not feel that I was dead but I was different in some way from my living self. The great oppression that had weighed on me for a year or more and colored all my thoughts was gone. I perceived and thought without any emotional tint at all. I wondered if everyone perceived things this way under chloroform and forgot it again when he came out of it. It would be inconvenient to look into some heads and not forget. Although I did not think I was dead, I still perceived quite clearly that I was soon to die. This brought me back to the consideration of Haddon's proceedings. I looked into his mind and saw that he was afraid of cutting a branch of the portal vein. My attention was distracted from details by the curious changes going on in his mind. His consciousness was like the quivering little spot of light in which is thrown by the mirror of the galvanometer. His thoughts ran under it like a stream, some through the focus bright and distinct, some shadowy in the half-light of the edge. Just now the little glow was steady, but the least movement on Mowbray's part, the slightest sound from outside, even a faint difference in the slow movement of the living flesh he was cutting, set the light spot shivering and spinning. A new sense of impression came rushing up through the flow of thoughts, and lo, the light spot jerked away toward it, swifter than a frightened fish. It was wonderful to think that upon the unstable, fitful thing depended all on the complex motions of the man, and for the next five minutes, therefore, my life hung upon its movements. And he was growing more and more nervous in his work. It was as if a little picture of a cut vein grew brighter, and struggled to oust from his brain another picture of a cut falling short of the mark. He was afraid. His dread of cutting too little was battling with his dread of cutting too far. Then suddenly, like an escape of water from under a lock gate, a great uprush of horrible realization set all his thoughts swirling, and simultaneously I perceived that the vein was cut. He started back with a hoarse exclamation, and I saw the brown-purple blood gather in a swift bead and run, trickling. He was horrified. He pitched the red-stained scalpel onto the otgonnel table, and instantly both doctors flung themselves upon me, making hasty and ill-conceived efforts to remedy the disaster. Ice, said Mowbray, gasping, but I knew that I was killed, though my body still clung to me. I will not describe their belated endeavors to save me, though I perceived every detail. My perceptions were sharper and swifter than they'd ever been in my life. My thoughts rushed through my mind with incredible swiftness, but with perfect definition. I can only compare their crowded clarity to the effects of their responsible dose of opium. In a moment it would all be over, and I should be free. I knew I was immortal, but what would happen I did not know. Should I drift off presently like a puff of smoke from a gun in some kind of half-material body, an attenuated version of my material self? Should I find myself suddenly among the innumerable hosts of the dead, and know the world about me for the phantasmagoria it has always seemed? Should I drift to some spiritualistic seance, and there make foolish, incomprehensible attempts to affect a pure-blind medium? It was a state of unemotional curiosity, of colorless expectation, and then I realized a growing stress upon me, a feeling as though some huge human magnet was drawing me upward out of my body. The stress grew and grew. I seemed an atom for which monstrous forces were fighting. For one brief, terrible moment, sensation came back to me, that feeling of falling headlong which comes in nightmares, that feeling of a thousand times intensified, that a black horror swept across my thoughts in a torrent. Then the two doctors, the naked body with its cut side, the little room swept away from under me and vanished as a speck of foam vanishes down an eddy. I was in midair far below the west end of London, receding rapidly, for I seemed to be flying swiftly upward, and as it receded, passing westward like a panorama. I could see through the faint haze of smoke, the innumerable roofs chimney set, the narrow roadways stifled with people and conveyances, and little specks of squares, and the church steeples like thorns sticking out of the fabric. But it spun away as the earth rotated on its axis, and in a few seconds, as it seemed... I was over the scattered clumps of the town about Ealing, the little Thames, a thread of blue to the south, and the Chiltern hills and the north downs coming up like the rim of a basin, far away and faint with haze. Up I rushed, and at first I had not the faintest conception of what this headlong rush upward could mean. Every moment the circle of scenery beneath me grew wider and wider, and the details of town and field, of hill and valley, got more and more hazy and pale and indistinct, A luminous gray was mingled more and more with the blue of the hills and the green of the open meadows. And a little patch of cloud, low and far to the west, shone ever more dazzlingly white. Above as the veil of atmosphere between myself and outer space grew thinner, the sky, which had been a fair springtime blue at first, grew deeper and richer in color, passing steadily through the intervening shades until presently it was dark as the blue sky of midnight, presently as black as the blackness of a frosty starlight, and at last as black as no blackness I had ever beheld. At first one star, and then many, and at last an innumerable host broke out upon the sky, more stars than anyone has ever seen from the face of the earth, for the blueness of the sky and the light of the sun and the stars sifted and spread about blindingly. There is diffused light even in the darkest skies of winter, and we do not see the stars by day only because of the dazzling irradiation of the sun. But now I saw things, I know not how, assuredly with no mortal eyes, and that defect of bedazzlement blinded me no longer. The sun was incredibly strange, wonderful. The body of it was a disk, of blinding white light, not yellowish as it seemed to those who live upon the earth, but livid white and streaked with scarlet streaks and rimmed about with a fringe of writhing tongues of red fire. And shooting halfway across the heavens from either side of it and brighter than the Milky Way were two penions of silver white, making it look more like those winged globes I'd seen in Egyptian sculpture than anything else I can remember upon earth. Those I knew for the solar corona, though I had never seen anything of it but a picture during the days of my earthly life. When my attention came back to the earth again, I saw that it had fallen very far away from me. field and town were long since indistinguishable, and the varied hues of the country were merging into a uniform bright grey, broken only by the brilliant white of the clouds that lay scattered in flocculent masses over Ireland and the west of England. For now I could see the outlines of the north of France and Ireland and all of this island of Britain save where Scotland passed over the horizon to the north or where the coast was blurred or obliterated by cloud. The sea was a dull grey and darker than the land and the whole panorama was rotating slowly toward the east. All this happened so swiftly that until I was some thousand miles or so from the earth I had no thought for myself and now I perceived I had neither hands nor feet, neither parts nor organs, and that I felt neither alarm nor pain. All about me I perceived that the vacancy, for I had already left the air behind, was cold beyond the imagination of man. But it troubled me not. The sun's rays shot through the void, powerless to light or heat, until they should strike on matter in their course. I saw things with a serene self-forgetfulness, even as if I were God. And down below there, rushing away from me, countless miles in a second, were a little dark spot on the grey marked the position of London. The doctors were struggling to restore life to the poor hacked and outworn shell I had abandoned. I felt then such release, such serenity, as I can compare to no mortal light I have ever known. It was only after I'd perceived all these things that the meaning of that headlong rush of the Earth grew into comprehension. Yet it was so simple, so obvious, that I was amazed at Am my never anticipating the thing that was happening to me. I'd suddenly been cut adrift from matter. All that was material of me was there upon Earth, whirling away through space, held to Earth by gravitation, partaking of the Earth inertia, moving in its wreath of epicycles around the sun and with the sun and the planets on their vast march through space but the immaterial has no inertia feels nothing of the pull of matter for matter or its parts from its garment of flesh there it remains so far as space concerns it any longer immovable in space I was not leaving the earth the earth was leaving me and not only the earth but the whole solar system was streaming past And about me in space, invisible to me, scattered in the wake of the earth upon its journey, there must be an innumerable multitude of souls, stripped like myself of the material, stripped like myself of the passions of the individual and the generous emotions of the gregarious brute, naked intelligences, things of newborn wonder and thought, marveling at the strange release that had suddenly come on them. As I receded faster and faster from the strange white sun and the black heavens and From the broad and shining earth upon which my being had begun, it seemed to grow in some incredible manner, vast, vast as regards this world I had left, vast as regards the moments and periods of a human life. Very soon I saw the full circle of the earth, slightly gibbous, like the moon when she nears her full, but very large and the silvery shape of America was now in the noonday blaze wherein, as it seemed... Little England had been basking but a few minutes ago. At first the earth was large and shone in the heavens, filling a great part of them, but every moment she grew smaller and more distant. As she shrank, the broad moon in its third quarter crept into view over the rim of her disc. I looked for the constellations. Only that part of Aries directly behind the sun and the lion which the earth covered were hidden. I recognized her Tortoise. Tattered a band of the Milky Way with a Vega and bright between Sun and Earth, and Sirius and Orion shone splendid against the unfathomable blackness in the opposite quarter of the heavens. The pole star was overhead, and the great bear hung over the circle of the Earth. And away, beneath and beyond the shining corona of the Sun, were strange groupings of stars I'd never seen in my life, notably a dagger shaped group that I knew for the Southern Cross. All these were no larger than they had been shown on earth, but the little stars that once scarce see shone now against the setting of black vacancies brightly as the first magnitudes had done, while the larger worlds were points of indescribable glory and color. Aldebaran was a spot of blood-red fire, and Sirius condensed to one point the light of innumerable sapphires, and they shone steadily. They did not scintillate, they were calmly glorious. My impressions had an at hardness and brightness. There was no blurring softness, no atmosphere, nothing but infinite darkness set with the myriads of these acute and brilliant points and specks of light. Presently, when I looked again, the little earth seemed no bigger than the sun, and it dwindled in turn as I looked until in second space, as it seemed to me, it was halved, and so it went on swiftly dwindling. Far away in the opposite direction, a little pinkish pin's head of light shining steadily was the planet Mars. I swam motionless in vacancy and, without a trace of terror or astonishment, watched the speck of cosmic dust we call the world fall away from me. Presently it dawned upon me that my sense of duration had changed, that my mind was moving not faster but infinitely slower. Between each separate impression there was a period of many days. The moon spun once round the earth as I noted this, and I perceived clearly the motion of Mars in his orbit. Moreover, it appeared as if the time between thought and thought grew steadily greater, until at last a thousand years was but a moment in my perception. At first, the constellations had shown motionless against the black background of infinite space, but presently it seemed as though the group of stars about Hercules and the Scorpion was contracting, while Orion and Aldebaran and their neighbors were scattering apart. Flashing suddenly out of the darkness, there came a flying multitude of particles of rock glittering like dust specks in a sunbeam and encompassed in a faintly luminous cloud. They swirled all about me and vanished again in a twinkling far behind. And then I saw that a bright spot of light that shone a little to one side of my path was growing very rapidly larger and perceived that it was the planet Saturn rushing toward me. Larger and larger it grew, swallowing up the heavens behind it and hiding every moment a fresh multitude of stars. I perceived its flattened whirling body, its disc-like belt, and seven of its little satellites. It grew and grew till it towered enormous, and then I plunged amid a streaming multitude of clashing stones and dancing dust particles and gas eddies and saw for a moment that mighty triple belt, like three concentric arches of moonlight above me, its shadow black on the boiling tumult below. These things happened in one-tenth of the time it takes to tell them. The planet went by like a flash of lightning. For a few seconds it blotted out the sun. And there, and then, became a mere black dwindling wind patch against the light. The earth, the mother moat of my being, I could no longer see. So with a stately swiftness, the profoundest silence, the solar system fell for me as it had been a garment, until the sun was a mere star amid the multitude of stars, with its eddy of planet specks lost in the confused glittering of the remote light. I was no longer a denizen of the solar system. I'd come to the outer universe. I seemed to grasp and comprehend the whole world of matter. Even more swiftly, the stars closed in about the spot where Antares and Vega had vanished into a phosphorant haze until that part of the sky that had a semblance of a whirling mass of nebulae, and before me yawned vaster gaps of vacant blackness, and the stars shone fewer and fewer. It seemed as if I moved toward a point between Orion's belt and sword, and the void about that region opened vaster and vaster every second, an incredible gulf of nothingness into which I was falling, faster and ever faster the universe rushed by, a hurry of whirling motes at last, speeding silently into the void, stars glowing brighter and brighter with their circling planets catching the light in a ghastly fashion as I neared them, shone out and vanished again into inexistence. Faint comets, clusters of meteorites, winking specks of matter, eddying light points, whizzed past, some perhaps a hundred millions of miles or so from me at most, few nearer, traveling with unimaginable rapidity. Shooting constellations, momentary darts of fire through that black, enormous night. More than anything else, it was like a dusty draught, sunbeam lit. Broader and wider and deeper grew the starless space, the vacant beyond into which I was being drawn. At last, a quarter of the heavens was black and blank, and the whole headlong rush of stellar universe closed in behind me like a veil of light that is gathered together. It drove away from me like a monstrous jack-o'-lantern driven by the wind. I'd come out into the wilderness of space, ever the vacant blackness grew broader, until the hosts of the stars seemed only like a swarm of fiery specks hurrying away from me, inconceivably remote. In the darkness, the nothingness and emptiness, was about me on every side. Soon the little universe of matter, the cage of points in which i had begun to be, was dwindling, now to a whirling disk of luminous glittering, and now to one minute disk of hazy light. In a little while it would shrink to a point, and at last would vanish altogether, Suddenly feeling came back to me, feeling in the shape of overwhelming terror, such a dread of those dark vastitudes as no words can describe, a passionate resurgence of sympathy and social desire. Were there other souls invisible to me as I to them, about me in the blackness? Or was I indeed, even as I felt, alone, Had I passed out of being into something that was neither being or not being? The covering of the body, the covering of matter had been torn from me in the hallucinations of companionship and security. Everything was black and silent. I had ceased to be. I was nothing, there was nothing, save only for the infinitesimal dot of light that dwindled in the gulf. I strained myself to hear and see, and for a while there was naught but infinite silence, intolerable darkness, horror, despair. Then I saw that about the spot of light into which the whole world of matter had shrunk, there was a faint glow, and in a band on either side of that darkness was not absolute. I watched it for ages, as it seemed to me, and through the long waiting the haze grew imperceptibly more distinct. And then about the band appeared an irregular cloud of the faintest palest brown, I felt a passionate impatience, but things grew brighter so slowly that they scarce seemed to change. What was this strange reddish dawn in the interminable night of space? The cloud shape was grotesque. It seemed to be looped along its lower side into four projecting masses, and above it ended in a straight line. What phantom was it? I felt assured I'd seen that figure before, but I could not think what, nor where, nor when it was. Then the realization rushed upon me. It was a clenched hand. I was alone in space, alone with this huge, shadowy hand upon which the whole universe of matter lay like an unconsidered speck of dust. It seemed as though I watched it through vast periods of time. On the forefinger glittered a ring, and the universe from which I'd come was but a spot of light upon the ring's curvature. And the thing that the hand gripped had the likeness of a black rod. Through a long eternity I watched this hand, with the ring and the rod, marveling and fearing and waiting helplessly on what might follow. It seemed as though nothing could follow, that I should watch forever, seeing only the hand and the thing it held, and understanding nothing of its import. Was the whole universe but a refracting speck upon some greater being? Were our world but the atoms of another universe? and those again of another, and so on through an endless progression. And what was I? Was I indeed immaterial? A vague persuasion of a body gathering about me came into my suspense. The abysmal darkness about the hand, filled with impalpable suggestions, with uncertain, fluctuating shapes. Then suddenly came a sound, like the sound of a tolling bell, faint as if infinitely far, muffled as though heard through thick swathings of darkness, a deep vibrating resonance with vast gulfs of silence between each stroke, and the hand appeared to tighten on the rod. And I saw far above the hand, toward the apex of the darkness, a circle of dim photophorescence, a ghostly sphere whence these sounds came throbbing, and at the last stroke the hand vanished, and the hour had come. I heard a noise of many waters, but the black rod remained as a great band across the sky, and then a voice which seemed to run the uttermost parts of space spoke, saying, There will be no more pain. At that, an almost intolerable gladness and radiance rushed in upon me, and I saw the circle shining white and bright, and the road black and shining, and many things else distinct and clear. In the circle was the face of a clock, and the rod, the rail of my bed, Haddon was standing on the foot against the rail with a small pair of scissors in his fingers, and the hands of my clock on the mantel over his shoulder were clasped together over the hour of twelve. Mowbray was washing something in a basin at the octagonal table, and at my side I felt a subdued feeling that could scarce be spoken of as pain. The operation had not killed me, and I perceived suddenly that the dull melancholy of half a year was lifted from my mind. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. I did, I thought they were a lot of fun. Um, They were both, like, not necessarily scary in their own way, but definitely different than what we normally read here. There's something special about like just there's a lot left to the imagination especially for the second one um, but I enjoyed both of them a whole whole lot I will be honest though I struggled a little bit with the second story. Bram Stoker has a very specific way of writing that I haven't quite gotten used to um, but hopefully it wasn't too noticeable. Let me know in the comment section below or don't. That's up to you. <laughs> um, let me know what else you would like to hear on the channel. And while you're doing that, I will go ahead and thank all of our patrons and members. Thank you to Absinthe Alice, Amethyst, Amet, Anne Barry, Bubbly Panda, Caroline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, Ellis G, Frankie Brockway, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt, Flat Out, Jennifer Dameron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justinia Zoromsky, Karen Parrott, Cat, Kathy Fanning, Kelly Sprague, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Ellie Evans, Melissa Berwick, Mindy Bannon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Masks, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, Shy Shy 420, The New Angulm 24, Tiger Princess, Tish Love, Triumph, and Victoria Step. Thank you all so, so much. I hope you have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. And as always, Take care out there.